When I got my first nuclear policy job in 2013, I called my dad to tell him the news. Now, he's a national security nerd. He worked in the White House in the 70s and 80s. He reads every single military history book that comes out, and his running buddies were in the Navy or worked for big defense contractors. But when I told him that I had gotten this nuke job, he was confused. And he said something like, nuclear weapons? I thought we figured all that out after the Cold War. But he was wrong. And unfortunately, he was not alone. The truth is, is that Americans are waking up to a nuclear nightmare. One that they thought had been fixed long ago. Today, we're going to talk about the U.S. nuclear arsenal, the public's lack of awareness about it, and why we need to pay more attention to our government's costly efforts to expand its role in our national security. This is Nukes of Hazard. I'm Jeff Wilson, your host and a policy analyst at the Center for Arms Control and Nonproliferation. Many people are shocked to learn that there are still nearly 14,000 nuclear weapons in the arsenals of nine countries around the world today. Over 90% of these weapons belong to the United States and Russia. The U.S. currently has about 4,000 nuclear weapons in its active arsenal, with another 2,000 in reserve or awaiting dismantlement. 1,550 of these weapons are considered deployed, meaning that they're actually readied for launch on the three legs of the U.S. nuclear triad. That's the strategic bombers, ground-based missile silos, and strategic ballistic missile submarines that make up the United States strategic forces. Almost 1,000 of the nukes in our active arsenal are kept loaded and in range of their targets at all times, ready to fire as soon as the order to launch comes from the President of the United States. And I want to make it clear here, only the president gets to decide when to launch our nuclear weapons. That means that President Trump, like the presidents before him, doesn't have to consult with the Secretary of Defense. He doesn't have to talk to the Joint Chiefs or get a declaration of war from Congress. He can simply decide to launch. And within minutes of giving the order, there could be hundreds of missiles in the air on their way to end life on this planet as we know it. The destructive power of the current U.S. arsenal is hard to comprehend. The bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima, which completely leveled that city, was only 15 kilotons, the equivalent of about 15,000 tons of TNT. Today, each one of our 14 Ohio-class submarines can launch some 100 nuclear warheads apiece, each several times more powerful than the Hiroshima bomb. The maximum combined yield of that payload can reach up to more than 45,000 kilotons, or the equivalent of 3,000 Hiroshima bombs. And of these 14 submarines, five are always kept in range of their targets in the Pacific and Atlantic Oceans. That's 100 nuclear missiles with some 460 warheads ready to launch within 15 minutes of receiving the order to fire from President Trump. And that's only a fraction of our nuclear force. The U.S. arsenal can deliver utter and complete devastation on a scale unparalleled in human history. That's why it's shocking that there are people out there saying that we should actually build more nuclear weapons. The latest push for new nuclear options promotes the idea that we need a new generation of smaller and more usable nuclear weapons. But here's the thing. There shouldn't be such a thing as a more usable nuclear weapon. 
And truthfully, it doesn't matter how small they are. A nuke is still a nuke, and once it's used, all bets are off. Even if we didn't build any new nuclear weapons, we're still on track to spend nearly $1.7 trillion on upgrading our current arsenal over the next 30 years. And I mean building new versions of all the missiles, all the bombers, and all the submarines. For context, the United States only spent about $32 billion in today's dollars developing the atomic bomb. The entire Apollo program that sent U.S. astronauts to the moon cost about $288 billion in today's dollars. For comparison, national student debt in this country is about $1.5 trillion. So the 1.7 that we're planning to spend on modernizing our force is an outrageous amount of money. But like my dad, most Americans today are completely unaware that their tax dollars still go to fund a bloated nuclear arsenal. Or know that their members of Congress have just been debating on the floor whether or not President Trump needs more nuclear weapons. To discuss these issues, I sat down to talk with Joe Serencioni the president of the Plowshares Fund, and the host of the Press the Button podcast. Joe Serencioni, you are the president of Plowshares Fund, the only foundation that works entirely on reducing the threats posed by nuclear weapons. You've written hundreds of articles, given dozens of hours of interviews on the critical importance of reducing this nuclear threat, and you've even offered a book called Nuclear Nightmares, Securing the World Before It's Too Late. In it, you say that after the Cold War, most Americans thought that the nuclear threat was over. They just assumed that we had figured it all out, right? So the threat hasn't changed. And in fact, some of it has even grown. What are the biggest nuclear threats that face the world today? You know, I did an article at the end of uh, last year, the kind of article I've done throughout my career in ranking the nuclear threats. And for the very first time, I listed the United States as the number one nuclear threat in the world today. In the past, maybe that had been the U.S.-Soviet arms race. For years, it's been nuclear terrorism. But I have to say that President Donald Trump is the biggest nuclear threat we face. It's not because I don't like Donald Trump. It's really an objective analysis. It's because every single problem that we face on the nuclear front has been made worse by the policies of this administration. And then you have the president himself. We're in a situation where the mental instability of the president of the United States has exposed the underlying insanity of our nuclear posture. One person can, within minutes, for whatever reason, launch enough nuclear weapons to destroy human civilization and perhaps human life on this planet. No one person should have that kind of power. To me, that's the number one threat we face. Right under that is what all the nuclear powers are doing. There's nine nuclear countries in the world, ranging from the U.S. and and Russia, who have 93% of the world's nuclear weapons, all the way down to the newest entry, North Korea, who has maybe 20 to 60 nuclear weapons, depending how you calculate. All of them are building new nuclear weapons. So we are in a new nuclear arms race. The long period, the decades of decline of arsenals, the decades of restraint, the decades of Republican and and Democratic policies, liberals and conservatives working together to reduce the nuclear threats, all those policies that were working, that have worked, that have made us safer but not yet safe, 
That period is now at an end. It is over. You do not have that kind of bipartisan cooperation. You do not have that concerted action. You don't have hands across the aisle. You have a, a complete collapse of the nuclear reduction process. There are no nuclear reductions happening right now. There are no talks about nuclear reductions happening now. There are no talks about talks about nuclear reduction. You're at a dead standstill. Some countries like India and Pakistan and China are adding to their arsenals. Some like the U.S. and Russia are adding qualitatively new kinds of nuclear weapons, nuclear hypersonic warheads, long-range cruise missiles, the so-called gateway nukes, the so-called low-yield, easy-to-use battlefield nukes. Countries are building these on multiple fronts. We have challenges in Europe, in South Asia, China Sea. So I think that you and I, oh, I don't think, I know that you and I agree on these. And I think it's interesting that you rank these somewhat similar, to, certainly as I do. But the first two are entirely American problems. Yes. Right? And I think that that is the part Americans have really forgotten about, too. They're unaware of the power of their own arsenal and the danger yeah. posed by it, even to themselves, even during in peacetime. So most Americans remain unaware that the United States still maintains some 4,000 nuclear weapons on bases in like nine states. Even more when you add in DOE facilities, not to mention all the nuclear weapons that we keep in NATO countries or the ones that are on mm -hmm. submarines in the Pacific and Atlantic. Let's talk a little bit about the scale of the U.S. arsenal. What is it? Why do we have it? Do we need so many? Yeah, it's massive. We say we have it to stop other people from attacking us with nuclear weapons. But the size of the arsenal is way more than you need for deterrence. And when you start to look at the structure, the posture, the military requirements, it's really a warfighting capability. This is a, a nuclear structure that's designed to wage nuclear war and to wage it first. This is really a structure that's positioned for a first strike to knock out the enemy, in this case, Russia or China, to knock out their forces before they can be used. That's not our policy. But that is how it's configured. So you got to look at what people say, but you also have to look at what they do. You don't need this many nuclear weapons. Let me just give you an example. I, I hate to talk about how old I am, but <laughs> I love to tell stories about the 80s. And I came to Washington in the early 80s, and I worked in the Reagan administration for a year, and then I worked on the House Armed Services Committee. And we had a peak nuclear arsenal then of about 35,000 nuclear weapons. 35 thousand nuclear weapons of all kinds deployed in all kinds of different ways. Thanks to Ronald Reagan, we started cutting that. This was his START treaty. We cut it in half. George H.W. Bush continued those cuts. George W. Bush continued those cuts. Bill Clinton contributed some. Obama contributed some. But mostly, Republicans slashed the arsenal and put us on this downward path. And so we're now down to, well, about 6,000 warheads. 35,000 then, a few decades later, six. Well, that is great progress. But all the way, every step of the way, you had generals and officials coming up to Capitol Hill, and I was there, and they swore, swore that we couldn't cut anymore, that it was too dangerous, that we needed every single one of those. In fact, we needed more, and we needed more kinds, and we needed more production facility. We needed more contracts, sir. We need them. We have to keep America safe. Bull. It was all bull, but it, it's powerful. Members of Congress are intimidated by that kind of talk. They're afraid of cutting nuclear weapons. But you look at the record. Look at what we did. Do you feel less safe now because we have 6,000 rather than 36,000? But with the same arguments, same exact arguments are being repeated that we can't go down. But of course you can go down. 
What's the proof? Look at what it takes to deter. China has a little under 300. That's the estimates. I think it's actually even lower than that. But let's say they have about 300 nuclear weapons. Um, about 40 to 60 of those, let's be generous, are on long-range missiles that can reach the United States. Some can just hit Alaska. Some could hit Washington, D.C. That is their force. And that deters us. They call it minimum deterrent strategy. Are they building more? A few more. But they're not racing up to 30,000 or, or to our level. They're not racing to 6,000. That is enough to deter us from attacking them. We would not attack China because they have the power to blow up one city, 10 cities, a dozen cities. And so why do we need 6,000? We, we don't. We simply don't. We could go down to low hundreds and still deter any foe. So, and at the same time, we're seeing some of that old Cold War thinking. I love, in your books, you've said this before, the war fighting plan, the actual plan for using <clears throat> nuclear weapons, is a Cold War strategy. It doesn't actually meet yes. what we're planning to, or what we say we use it for today. It's not a deterrent force. It's a war fighting force. Yes. But now we're starting to see this resurgence of new, low-yield, tactical, smaller, more usable nuclear weapons. Sort of that returning even to the policy of Cold War strategy. What do you think about that? Yeah. It's a very dangerous development. We have a new generation of young Dr. Strangeloves who make a lot of money, make a reputation, find a ready audience among defense contractors and hardliners by promulgating nuclear war fighting doctrines. They couch it in different terms. They say, oh, no, 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 no. We need a nuclear weapon on this particular missile of this particular yield in order to restore deterrence, in order to convince the foe that they can't shoot a similar weapon. But as you probe deeper and as you start looking at the, even the view graphs that are presented at the Strategic Command, at what's in the Nuclear Posture Review, you see pretty clearly that there's a number of contingencies for using nuclear weapons first that this could be used to control the situation, to change the course of battle, to respond to an unexpected threat. We've had this before. Uh, when John Bolton was helping to shape the George W. Bush nuclear posture, they put all these contingencies in there, expanding the role of nuclear weapons to counter chemi chemical weapons, biological weapons, unexpected conventional attacks, to go after deeply buried targets. And you see that coming back again. And it has always been thus. There have always been people who has said, as Donald Trump said during the campaign, what's the point? Why do we have these nuclear weapons if we don't use them? The existential question for nuclear contractors is, why am I building this thing? How do I justify the contract for this if we're not going to use them? So they have to show a sort of utility for their weapons, and they, they want to show that they're relevant to the smaller battles we're likely to face, as well as the bigger battles. Unfortunately, you, you don't really have a progressive response to this. I mean, you do. There are individuals like Global Zero have written an excellent 100-page alternative nuclear posture review that shows how you can accomplish all the military missions we set out with the force of a fraction of what we now have, about 450 weapons on five submarines and some reserve bombers. You don't need the ICBMs. You can do it. So you can make the case. You have people like the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, ICANN, and Beatrice Finn saying we should ban nuclear weapons. You have countries ratifying treaties to ban nuclear weapons. You have people out there. But here in Washington, D.C., I find that progressives are afraid of this discussion. 
the problem with Democrats is they're so focused on domestic issues that ever since Bill Clinton, they've been using defense to triangulate. In other words, I'm going to meet the Republicans halfway. I'm going to show them that I'm better at defense than they are. I'm going to show the American people that I'm tough on defense in order to protect myself from attacks from the right so that I can do the things I really care about, which are these domestic programs. But here's the problem now. We have gotten so out of control on our military budgets where you have the Democrats proposing a $733 billion defense budget this year to counter the Trump plan for $750 billion, both of which are unaffordable, both of which are ordering more weapons than we can possibly pay for. Everybody knows this. The budget projections, even as they escalate like this, cannot pay for all the weapons that are currently on order. The crunch is coming, what they call procurement bow wave. It's going to hit in about the middle of the next decade. But they are paying so much on this that because they're trying to be tough, they're trying to protect themselves because of the, the debate is largely determined by contracts and lobbyists that are hired. But as that budget grows, as it spirals out of control, it is sucking money away from the domestic side of the agenda. So the old democratic gambit, the Clinton gambit to triangulate on defense, to protect yourself from attacks from the right by spending money on defense in order to free up your domestic agenda doesn't work anymore because that shield, that barrier is too expensive. You can't afford it. You can't afford Medicare for all if you don't cut the military budget. You might not be able to afford Medicare if you don't cut the military budget. We are about to spend $2 trillion on nuclear weapons over the next 25 years. Two trillion dollars. Imagine what you could do with that money if you were putting it into renewable energies, if we were using it for the Green New Deal. So these trade-offs are coming. Are they joined this year? Not yet, but it is coming. It is coming. 2020, 2021, 2020. You've got to make choices. So progressives, liberals, Democrats, reasonable Republicans, libertarians, you've got to come to grips with this. You've got to cut the military budget. And if you're going to start, the best place to start is cutting the useless, redundant nuclear force and saving hundreds of billions right off the bat. And the truth is, is that these new weapons that that we're trying to produce aren't actually making us safer, right? A new low yield weapon put on a SLBM someplace wouldn't make us safer. In fact, it just makes the world more destabilized, right? Yes. Producing more usable nuclear weapons, that doesn't help deterrence. Right. If the other side thinks that you are likely to use this nuclear weapon first, then they're going to use the nuclear weapon they have firster. They're going to try to preempt you. And the, and the argument that's a small nuclear weapon, that has been rebuffed by George Schultz, by Armed Services Chairman Adam Smith. There's no such thing as a small nuclear weapon. Colin Powell, once you cross that nuclear threshold, there's no going back. You use one, the other side will, won't be intimidated. They will feel they will have to respond, and then you're, you're off to the races. Right. Like Ronald Reagan said, nuclear war cannot be won, so it must never be fought. Yeah, right. Many Americans, even progressives, like you've been saying, have a tough time on this issue. They say, oh, it's too big or it's, it's too esoteric. The opportunities for making a difference in the nuclear policy sphere are too small. So I've heard you say this mm. before. Impossible things happen all the time, <laughs> right? This isn't even an impossible thing. This mm -hmm. is something that we've been working towards for generations of American politicians. We've gone from an arsenal of over 30,000 weapons to one of four to 6,000 today, depending on how you count it. Yeah. How and why can Americans recommit themselves to this challenge today? When people say things are impossible, what they usually mean is that they're hard. 
And that's true. When you're dealing with things like this, climate change, nuclear weapons, it is hard. It is a generational challenge. I never thought I was going to spend my whole life working on this, but I am. And I'm glad. I want to do this. I'm going to die before this job is finished, but that's the way these problems are. You got you to gotta not just spend your whole life doing it. You got to prepare the next generation to come up and do it too. And that's what we're seeing. This is what is so exciting about this moment. What we now see over the last two and a half years, the biggest outpouring of the American population into political activism that I've seen in decades. You really have to go back to the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement, the nuclear freeze movement of the 80s to see this number of people voting, writing, emailing, social media-ing. <laughs> and a lot of it is women-led and a lot of it is youth-led. So here's the next generation of people like me got to do everything we can and then be ready to step aside. Then we're ready to clear the path so this new generation can rise and take on the challenges. Despite what we said about the threats and how close we are to annihilating ourselves as a species, I am hugely optimistic. So one last thing. I'm a young American. I care about climate change. I care about women's issues, right? I care about civil rights. I care about gender rights. I care about voting in this country. All these things that have come under attack seemingly in the past couple of years. Sell me on why I need to care about nuclear weapons right now. There are a lot of challenges we face in our personal lives, in our families, in our states. A lot of things we have to worry about. But of all the challenges we face, there are only two that threaten destruction on a planetary scale. Climate change and nuclear weapons. Climate change can destroy human civilization over decades. Nuclear weapons can do it in an afternoon. So everything you value, everything you care about will be impossible, might be eliminated if we don't get the nuclear weapons issue right. And if you think that this is not a problem just because you can't see them, because they're hidden under the great prairies of America or under the oceans of the world or in remote air bases, well, then you don't understand that things you can't see can kill you. And you have to understand that this is not under control. The Cold War is over, the weapons remain. We did not solve the problem, we shrank it, we reduced it. But it is still there. And at any moment, whether because of miscalculation or mistake, someone in the White House can give an order and in five to seven minutes the warheads will be flying. No consultation necessary, no cabinet meeting, no congressional hearing, no brief at the Supreme Court. One man can press that button and can blow up the world. That is worthy of at least some of your time, some of your energy, some of your money to make sure that all these other things that you really care about, you can live to enjoy and preserve. Amen. Thank you, Joe. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Jeff. It was a pleasure being on with you. Thanks for joining us. I hope that this episode gave you a better idea of the importance of this issue writ large. In the weeks ahead, we're going to dig deeper into some of these points, especially the resurgence of the push for these new low-yield or tactical nuclear weapons in the U.S. arsenal, presidential launch authority, and more. Until then, you can follow us on the web or on social media. Our handle is at nukes of hazard, that's at nukes underscore of underscore hazard. 
and we'll see you next time. Thank you.